$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part 10 of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Once again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton, and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case extensively. I can't recommend enough that you pick up a copy of her book. Last week, we left off with Andrew Bellwood, Holland asked to Vancouver Island, after being beaten by a couple of Willie's friends. Willie claimed it was because he had stolen from him, but it just so happened to be around the same time that Willie had confided in Andrew how he picked up women from the downtown east side and what he did with them once he got him back to his trailer. Andrew left in February of 1999. Despite the fact that Lynn Ellingson had witnessed the attack on Andrew Bellwood, she remained living there in the spare room of Willie's trailer, cooking, cleaning, working, and heavily taking drugs. It was around the same time that Lisa Yeltz was contacted by RCMP officer Ron Palta about the phone call Wayne Lang had received from Bill Hiscox back in July the previous year. I mean, an entire seven months had passed since a tip had been received. But hey, at least it was being followed up on. But there's something you should know about Lisa Yeltz. She despised anyone with a badge, and she denied ever having that conversation with Bill Hiscox. Yeltz stated in the documentary The Pig Farm, For one, I hate cops. And two, I didn't see anything. You give a cop an inch, they take a mile. They turn around and take the story and twist it 10 ways to Sunday and blow it up. But don't let that fool you. Lisa did have her suspicions about Willie. And not just Willie, but also Dave. 
she knew Dave Picton would protect his brother, and that if she decided to talk too much, she'd be silenced by one of the Picton brothers. So she was uncooperative and disclosed nothing to the police. The whispers about Willie on the street were getting louder, and the public was becoming concerned and more vocal about their fear that a serial killer was roaming downtown. High-level officials at the Vancouver Police Department wanted to put an end to all of the public serial killer talk. So on March 2, 1999, they issued another public statement. It's documented in On the Farm. Chief Constable Bruce Chambers stated, We keep reviewing this because we hear the concern from the community, but we've found nothing that would indicate there's a serial killer involved in these missing people. But behind closed doors, some of the detectives working Project Amelia were convinced the disappearances of the women was the work of a serial killer. Lori Shinner was one of them, and not only did she think it was a serial killer, she suspected Willie Picton, so much so that she had reached out to Kim Rosmo and told him all about the tip from Bill Hiscox, stating, We've got this really good suspect, Robert Picton. He's got a wood chipper. What do we do next? Rosmo advised that the next step should be to surveil their suspect. So Shinner wasted no time and went straight to the leader of Project Amelia, Jeremy Fields, who agreed that it needed to be done, but thought there was no way VPD was going to go through all the trouble and decided to take it straight to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. RCMP agreed to assist. A small surveillance team was assembled with instruction to tail Willie and stop him if he ever picked anyone up. So they did. They watched him go back and forth to work and to the farm. And that was about it. Nothing suspicious was ever noted. And maybe there was good reason for that. A member of the surveillance team would later admit that he thought Picton had spotted him on at least one occasion when he was following. With zero to go on, the surveillance was ended in two weeks. But investigators weren't done with Picton just yet. They decided to run a DNA sample of Willie's against DNA collected in the murders of three women. You see, Willie had agreed to give a DNA sample after his arrest for the attack on Sandra Ringwald. And years earlier, in 1995, three women were raped, strangled, and all found in very close proximity to one another in what would become known as the Hemlock Valley Murders. We talked about this briefly several episodes back. The victims in this case were Tracy Olgid, Tammy Pipe, and Victoria Yonker. Police knew that the same killer had murdered all three women. DNA had been collected from each of the victims. So they ran the DNA against Willie's, but it wasn't a match. To date of this recording, the Hemlock Valley murders remain unsolved. With that, the wind was taken out of their sails. Investigators with Project Amelia wanted a search warrant to go and have a look around the farm themselves. But after seeing nothing suspicious during the surveillance and the DNA not being a match, they were out of gas and had no proper cause to obtain a warrant. Unfortunately, just weeks after surveillance ended, 
another woman would vanish. And Lynn Ellingson would witness something on the Picton farm that would haunt her for the rest of her life. Lynn Ellingson had been around Willie and the farm enough by this point that she started to notice suspicious shit surrounding Willie Picton. And she'd heard rumors around town and from those closest to Willie about human body parts being stored in freezers on the Picton farm. One day in March of 99, she just couldn't take it anymore. She decided to ask Willie's brother Dave about what she'd heard. According to On the Farm, Lynn walked up to Dave and said, Dave, I've been hearing a lot of rumors around here. What kind of rumors, he responded. Well, I had heard that there were arms and legs in the freezer. Dave calmly answered, Sure, let's go in the trailer and talk. The pair headed inside the trailer. As soon as they got through the doors, Dave pushed her up against the wall and slapped her hard in the face. Lynn tried to get away, running down the hallway into her room frantically, trying to get the door closed before he could get to her. But he pushed the door open. Lynn threw a vase, shattered the window, and she managed to get away from him. According to Lynn, Willie came to her and said that Dave wanted her off the property, but he didn't make her leave. Instead, he told her to hide out inside the trailer when Dave was around. I'd be willing to bet serious cash that staying on the Picton farm would be a decision she would soon regret. Lynn Ellingson was about to witness something in the slaughterhouse that Rob Zombie himself couldn't have imagined. And this was no horror film. It was real life. According to On the Farm, the nightmare began when Willie asked Lynn to ride with him to go out and pick up a girl. It was March 20th, 1999. She agreed to go and they hopped in Willie's truck and headed off. They were driving around 12th Street when a new Westminster police officer pulled Willie over for swerving. She had him step out of the truck to make sure he was sober. And he was. Willie was always sober. Sure, he provided copious amounts of drugs and alcohol to the women, but as I've said before, he never partook. Lynn Ellingson was drunk, but Willie was driving, so the officer just advised him to take it on back to the house. But that wasn't what happened. Instead, Willie headed right on over to the downtown east side and bought some crack for Lynn. He got back in the truck and told her he had to stop off on one more street and pick up that girl for the night. As they drove, Willie spotted a woman with long, dark hair. He stopped and she approached the truck. Lynn, Willie, and the dark-haired woman chatted for a moment, and the woman noticed the crack pipe there in Lynn's hand. Willie invited her back to his place to party. She was just a little hesitant at first. But after Lynn told her she'd be coming back too, she climbed into the truck. After a quick stop to get more drugs, they all headed back to the farm. As Willie drove, Lynn and the dark-haired woman smoked crack together. They were laughing and joking and having a good time. Once they arrived back at Willie's place, the girls continued to smoke. 
Then Willie interrupted everything and said, Let's get this show on the road. Who's first? The woman said she'd go first. She and Willie headed off to his room and shut the door. Lynn went to her room, settled in, and took a few more hits off her crack pipe. A short time later, she was startled by a noise outside. She thought it almost sounded like a scream. She headed out of her room to see what the hell was going on. She checked Willie's room first. The door was wide open, and there were clothes scattered around, but it was completely empty. Willie and the dark-haired woman were nowhere to be found. According to Lynn Ellingson's later testimony, as reported by the Star and the Globe and Mail, she proceeded to the kitchen. That's when she noticed that a light in the barn Willie used to slaughter was on. As she started to walk out and head to the barn, she heard more noises but couldn't make out exactly what they were. She pushed the barn door open slowly and was hit with a strong foul odor she never remembered before. There were plenty of foul smells on the Picton farm, but this, this was different. As the barn door swung open, she saw it. There, hanging from chains typically used to butcher hogs, was a human body. And there was Willie, covered in blood, cutting something on the large metal table underneath the suspended body. The table was soaked with blood, and there were several knives lying on the table also stained with blood. She froze, her mind not able to fully process what her eyes were seeing. Before she could compose herself, Willie Picton grabbed her and pulled her inside the barn, forcing her to the metal table. Once she was standing next to the table, at eye level, right in front of her face, were a pair of legs. Lynn was close enough to notice the bright red toenail polish on the woman's toes. Willie forced her to look. Her eyes trailed down and landed on the table in what appeared to be a mix of blood and hair. As they stood there, he told her if she was ever to say anything to anyone, she'd be right there beside her. Willie, convinced he'd scared her enough she wouldn't breathe a word, walked her back to the trailer. Len called for a taxi to go out and get more dope. On the stand, she would testify that she only returned to the farm to get some of her belongings on a couple occasions. However, according to On the Farm, calls for medical assistance were placed by Willie to 963 Dominion Avenue on March 29th and May 30th, 1999 both in reference to a drug overdose, and both times the patient was Lynn Ellingson. Over the years, some have doubted Lynn's story about the woman on the farm, and while maybe it seems far-fetched that a human being could slaughter another human being like an animal, the depths of Robert Willie Picton's depravity know no bounds. Not only that, but there was also the fact that a woman with long, dark hair, vanished just the day after police records indicated Willie was pulled over in New Westminster that night of March 20th, 1999. And while Lynn Ellingson can't recall the date of the incident in the slaughterhouse, police records don't lie. 
According to the Native Women's Association of Canada, Georgina Faith Pappen was born on March 11, 1964, in Edmonton, Alberta. She was number four of nine children, and her childhood wasn't easy. Her mother was a survivor of a residential school, suffered with substance abuse issues, and multiple illnesses, including cancer. Her father was in and out of jail. Georgina was taken away at a young age, and her grandparents played a major role in her early life. Her grandfather was a well-known Canadian baseball player known as Jimmy Smilin' Rattler Rattlesnake. According to the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, Jimmy was a First Nations player from the Ermensky Cree Nation. He was a left-handed pitcher who played for several teams throughout the 1930s and 40s and was known for his trademark sawdust ball. Jimmy was posthumously inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame on November 16, 2021. Tragically, Georgina's grandmother passed away in a car wreck by the time she was just a year old. She and all of her siblings were placed in the child welfare system. Some of the siblings stayed together, and some, unfortunately, were separated. Georgina was sent to a foster home with her older brother, but her sisters were sent to a residential school. In fact, it was the same one their mother had survived. And just a side note here, a very important side note. In case you're not familiar with what exactly a residential school was, let me give you it in a nutshell. According to Scientific American, the goal of Canada's Indian residential school system was to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man. And yes, it pains my heart to even repeat those words. Between 1883 and 1997, over 150,000 children were taken from their families and their homes, often forcibly and placed in these so-called schools, with subpar education where the focus was on manual labor, religious instruction, and cultural assimilation. The children were forbidden to even acknowledge their indigenous heritage or to speak their own language, not to mention the abuse that went on in every imaginable form. What happened to indigenous children at these schools was nothing short of cultural genocide and an attempt to destroy every aspect of indigenous cultures. And it only gets worse. In 2021, over 1,300 unmarked graves were identified at four of the 139 federally ran schools. 1,300 graves representing 1,300 children in four out of 139 schools. The discovery and recovery efforts continue today, and officials expect that number to skyrocket. We could do a series or 20 on the absolute horrors and trauma students of these schools faced. I couldn't just gloss over what it means to be a survivor of a residential school as Georgina's mother and siblings were. Georgina and her brother were tossed around from foster home to group home to another home and repeat the process again. 
her family believes both suffered abuse and neglect in some of the homes. At just 12 years old, she ran away to the streets of Calgary. Not even a teen yet and completely alone on the streets, she joined a gang for protection. When she was just 14 years old, she was living in Las Vegas and already working in the sex trade. Georgina spent time in and out of prison and moved frequently. She would go on to have seven children over the years and eventually ended up living on the downtown east side with four of her seven kids. She struggled to make ends meet. She had a sixth grade education and a criminal record. So she did what she had to do to take care of her children. And she used drugs as a way to cope with it all. By October of 1998, her remaining children were taken from her. This destroyed Georgina and her life unraveled. The months prior to her disappearance are documented in Stevie Cameron's book. As it turned out, Maggie Gisley was a good friend of Georgina's, and on March 2, 1999, Maggie had a baby shower and invited Georgina. Maggie was anxiously awaiting the arrival of her bundle of joy and had been clean and sober for quite some time now. She was excited to see her friend. But when Georgina showed up, she was a wreck. You see, earlier that day, she received bad news in a court hearing about her children, and she was inconsolable. Maggie tried to talk her into staying with her, but Georgina headed out to the low track in search of something to dull her pain. According to her friend Sharon Baptiste, that night after Maggie's baby shower, Georgina ended up at the Astoria Hotel with Willie Picton. She recalled an On the Farm. Georgina told me on that night that she had a sugar daddy, and I should come too. I met her at the Astoria. He, yeah, Picton, was there, and he was ignorant. He acted like he ran the Astoria. He'd come in with money and buy everybody a beer. He would never drink himself. At first, when he came in years ago, he was quiet, and then he started flashing the money. He gave me $20. I was drug sick, but I still had enough sense to know he was weird. He gave me $20 at the Astoria and said to me, go get drugs and come back. I went to get the drugs, but I didn't come back. Sharon learned the next day that Georgina had left the bar with Willie Picton. On March 16th, Georgina was admitted to Vancouver's St. Paul Hospital with chest pains. She was really sick, suffering both pneumonia and a drug overdose. Five days later, on March 21st, 1999, she was still in the hospital. A nurse saw Georgina pushing her IV pole headed to the fourth floor to go out for a smoke. When she didn't return to her room, the nurse went looking but couldn't find her. All that she found was an ivy pole ditched in a bathroom. Georgina Faith Pappen was kind despite her struggles. A beautiful woman who loved her culture. She took part in sweats, learned traditional teachings, songs, and beadwork. She loved to make traditional outfits, dream catchers, and moccasins. Even though Georgina and her siblings had been separated, 
they reunited and had a fierce love for one another. Her sister Bonnie reflected, I remember Georgina's voice like she was here, and it was so warm and friendly. She made me feel loved and that I belonged somewhere. It was the best feeling ever. May we all make those around us feel the way Georgina did. By April of 1999, the family and friends of the women were beyond frustrated. They couldn't see where police had done a damn thing to find their missing loved ones. They didn't feel as if their cases were being taken seriously. And to add insult to injury, a $100,000 reward had just been offered by Vancouver's police board and city government for information about a string of home invasion and garage fires happening in some of the ritzy neighborhoods in Vancouver. A $100,000 reward for property damage. Zero dollars and zero cents for information about the dozens of women missing from the downtown east side. They wanted answers. Why hadn't a reward been offered in their cases? What were police actually doing to find their missing loved ones? Who was responsible for all the disappearances? As the families and news media applied pressure, once again, the officials in Vancouver doubled down. According to On the Farm, Mayor of Vancouver at the time, Philip Owen, who just so happened to be head of the police board, spoke to radio reporter Robert Phillips and stated, There's no evidence that a serial killer is at work. No bodies have been found. The police have a procedure for homicides and missing people, and they are following it. And as far as the reward went, Owens went on to say, I don't think it's appropriate for a big award for a location service. A location service? You've got to be shitting me. Surprise, surprise, Owen would later deny making that statement. In an article in the Globe and Mail published in 2012, former Mayor Philip Owen said he didn't recall making that statement and didn't recognize the reporter's name. He went on to say he wasn't opposed to the reward per se. He just wanted to make sure the Vancouver Police Board wasn't responsible for the full $100,000. He ended that interview by throwing all the shade at the police, blaming them and them alone for failing to catch Willie Picton. Deflecting all responsibility, spoken like a true politician. The family and friends of the women and community activists decided it was time to gather together and make a bold statement. On May 12, 1999, three to four hundred of them showed up to the First United Church in the downtown east side and held a memorial service for 23 of the missing women. The ceremony was beautiful, a mix of traditional native practices and a Christian service. They sang hymns, lit candles, held a healing circle, and prayed together. Many family members spoke and remembered their missing loved ones. It was touching and heartbreaking all at the same time. But that wasn't all. Once the family members were done speaking, activists and supporters of the families and the women also spoke. 
condemning the inaction of the police, demanding the women's cases be investigated thoroughly, and that a reward be offered. After the service, the group marched to Crab Park, where a memorial bench was dedicated in the women's honor. According to the VPD Missing Women Investigation Review, Detective Lori Schenner of Project Amelia was also at the memorial services. By this time, she was working pretty closely with the women's families and was just as convinced as Kim Rosmo that a serial killer was prowling the downtown east side. It's noted in the investigation review that Schenner had unofficially encouraged family members to advocate for the reward. But you know who was also in attendance? None other than Major Owen. Yep, he was there marching, quote, amid banners and drums. Oh, of course he was. And with the heavy media presence, it seemed he had a change of heart on that whole reward money thing. He spoke to the Vancouver province and said, It may take a $100,000 reward for each of the women to solve a mystery that has residents, insert long dramatic pause here, fearing a serial killer. The families want this. The public wants it. Lawyers are lawyers. They sometimes move a little slowly, but I think this could be worked out. Anyone else have whiplash? Because that was a hell of a 180. That man flip-flopped faster than an angry fish on a hot deck. But are we surprised? I mean, politicians are politicians. And that's all I got to say about that. Those lawyers didn't work too slowly because not long after the memorial service, a reward was offered. A $100,000 one. According to the Globe and Mail, $70,000 came from the B.C. Ministries of Public Safety and the Solicitor General, and the other $30,000 came from the Vancouver Police. That reward would end up paying off in droves. In August of 2010, it would be split six ways, with shares going to six informants who came forward with information about Robert Willie Picton. But that's another story for another day, because unfortunately, we're out of time. Before we go, I'd like to note that a crisis line for survivors and their family members of the Canadian residential school system is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential experience. Just call 1-800-721-0066. You can also go to the Indian Residential School Survivors Society at irsss.ca for resources and information. Please don't suffer in silence. Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton, and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It is wonderfully written and details every aspect of this case. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. 
New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I'll be bringing you part number 11 of the Pig Farmer series next week, and I can't wait. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.